If I were to ask you to write on a sheet of paper the names of five people who've had a really big impact on you, what names would you write? If I were to say, hey, everybody get out a half sheet of paper, write on the sheet of paper the names of five different who have been pivotal in helping you become the person that you are. You might have some family members on there. There are some people in the room that would say, well, my mother would be on there, but let's be honest, there, there's lots of people who say, no, my mom really wasn't that for me. There could be some dads on the list. There could be some coaches, maybe some teachers, some church members. Each of us does have people who have influenced us, people who have helped us become who we are. What do those people share in common? That's a question that I've been thinking about over the past five or six weeks as I've been working on this message. What do the people who impact our lives, share. The names are different on everybody's pieces of paper. I mean, there could be some people who, who are generationally the same and perhaps went to the same schools that might have some common names. Maybe there are some family members that would say, man, it was our grandparents, and there would be some, some common links there. But I don't know how many people are here today, a hundred or so, if we were to have a list of five names per person, if that were 500 names, there probably would be a great variety in what those names are. But they do share some things in common. What? I, I asked a student minister friend of mine to perform an experiment for me. And so about three weeks ago, he asked his teenagers on a Wednesday night to write down the names of five people that have impacted them greatly. Now, their lives are still young, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So the, the framework may be a little bit different. They don't have co-workers or people like that. He asked the teenagers to write down the names of five people who have impacted them. And then I went back to him and asked, tell me about these people. Do they share these traits in common? And I've got the half sheets of paper right here. There are people on here like my brother, mom, Courtney, Aunt Carol, Miss Sandy. There are all kinds of names, Miss... Somebody, this person needs legible handwriting here. <laughs> there are all kinds of names here. And I asked my student minister friend, after I told him what the main ideas in today's message would be, I said, tell me, do these people share those traits in common? He said, the ones that I know do. Some of them, you know, are, are family that I, that I don't know or people that I don't know. But the ones on this list share those traits. So let's look at them together. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is the only anonymous book in the New Testament. 
Scholars cannot say with certainty who wrote the book of Hebrews. A lot of people think Paul did it. It's very theological. It's really steeped in Old Testament passages. And so because of his being a Pharisee uh, prior to his conversion to Christ and his scholarly academics, a lot of people think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and he may have. But every other book that he wrote, he identified himself. In fact, the first word a lot of times is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ. And so we really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of speculation about who might have done it. But it's the only anonymous book that we have in the New New Testament. A great deal of it, since it is written to the Hebrews points out Jesus as the Passover lamb, as the high priest, all of these things that the Jewish people would really be accustomed to in their temple, in their worship, in their offerings, in their sacrifices, in their incense burning, and those types of things. The writer of Hebrews says, look at how Jesus fulfills all of this. When he died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, all of those Old Testament regulations and laws were fulfilled and he is our perfect sacrifice. And then he got to some application sections here in chapter 10 or they're kind of sprinkled in, but here's one specific. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, the writer said, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good deeds or good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. In these verses are some characteristics which if if we really desire to impact people, we must possess them. Now, I, I can't speak to the level of intensity of each person's life in this room. I recognize that there are some people in the world who just really want to get through life as best as they can and they want to be happy and really they, they order their lives and they make their decisions based on what they think will make them happy. But there are others who say, I am here because Jesus Christ put me here. I, I am a divinely created being who has an appointment for 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this planet. And I want to have the greatest impact possible. I want to impact people deeply, and I want to impact people widely to spread the impact as far and as deep as it can happen. And so it's to those people I'm speaking this morning. What are these characteristics of people who say, God, I do not want to waste my life. I want people to be different. I want you to use me because I have been on this planet. Well, first, in verse 23, Paul says, they hold on to the confession of their hope without wavering. Now, I need to do a little bit of explanation here. 
almost every time in the New Testament, not every time, but almost exclusively in the New Testament, when the word hope is written, it refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the great hope for those of us who belong to Jesus. This world is not going to continue the way that it is. I think many of us will say, man, it is just getting worse and worse and worse, but it will not forever. One day... The Father will say, Son, it's time. And Jesus is going to come back. The Old Testament and New Testament imagery is that he is going to split the eastern sky. That's why people, when they are buried in cemeteries, are buried facing the east. Because Jesus is going to come. Our hope as people who belong to Jesus, who've been saved, who've been forgiven of our sins, is that he is coming back to get us and holding fast to our confession means that we want to be ready when He comes. We want to be prepared. Anything that we know that we should do, we want to do. We don't want to procrastinate. We don't want to push off because Jesus may come today. We don't want to engage in wrongdoing because we don't want Him to come and catch us right in the middle of doing something that is wrong. And so this application here that, that the writer of Hebrews says is, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. In other words, what you say you believe, live it. Don't just nod your head. Don't just pretend. Don't hope that you have the reputation of it. He said what you say you believe. If you say this is how I live, he said then live that way. Don't just say you do it. Live that way. Now, many places in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, refer to the great reunion where God is going to gather his people home as a wedding, as a marriage feast. And in the New Testament specifically, Paul referred to the church as the bride of Christ. And so there's that imagery. With that, let me show you a way to think about being prepared for Jesus' return. I, I still do weddings, but I don't do nearly the number of weddings that I used to when I, when I was at Mount Vernon. Now I only do weddings for people that I really care about. When you're on a church staff, sometimes, well, shoot, they're a member of the church. I've got to do this. I don't want to, but I've got to. But I don't have to do that now. Weddings, uh, weddings some ministers avoid them because they are very lengthy, very time consuming, take up a whole weekend. You've got to do marital counseling, premarital counseling before marital counseling afterwards. And so a lot of people just avoid them and they don't want to do them. But I, I like doing weddings because there is nothing like watching the conflict between a bride and her mother as the wedding day gets closer. I thought we would have this for the reception. No, Mom, I don't want to do that. Oh, that's the dress. No, Mom, this is the dress. No, it's my wedding. The only thing that's better is the conflict between the bride's mother and the groom's mother when they both think they're in charge. I typically purchase bags of Orville Redenbacher, Orville Redenbacher popcorn and just sit and say, well, you know what she said? And they start tearing into each other. 
I did a wedding a couple of years ago at First Baptist Starkville, and I want to make this recommendation to every one of you who are parents of daughters or daughters yourselves. They got married at 10 o'clock in the morning. Nobody had to wait around all day. Nobody had to, you know, oh, we can't make plans, we can't do this. They got married early, and then off they went. I was not able to do the rehearsal dinner. That's typically the case because of speaking engagements. But I, told, I met with a couple of he, ahead of time. I knew the order. I, I shared the vows, said, here's what we're going to say, and here's how I'm going to ask them. I'll get there as early as you need me to on Saturday. And so I did get there early. And in the chapel building, the old sanctuary, not the new one at First Baptist Starkville, there's a, a really nice bridal room. And so when I arrived, I went and tapped on the door to speak to the bride, say, hey, I want you to know I'm here. And one of the bridesmaids did not even open the door the whole way. She just, like it was some secret clubhouse. And I said, hey, just want you to, she said, you need to get in here now. It's an emergency. I said, what's wrong? She said, Sarah is going crazy. And so I walked in and Sarah's makeup had already been done, but there were little streaks of whatever that black stuff you women put around your eyes is, shoe polish, whatever. And so she was a wreck. And I said, Sarah, what's wrong? She said, look at my hair. I said, what's wrong? This, this is not supposed to be. She was not happy. I thought, I have some scissors. I could just, you know, cut it on off. And then she said, and then when I saw my hair and I got upset about it, then I started crying. I'm going to have to have my makeup done again. It's only an hour and a half before this. She was worked up. I said, Sarah, do not concern yourself. And I, I called her husband's name, Matt. I said, Matt does not care. She said, but I care. When they open those back doors, I want to look beautiful when he sees me. That's holding fast the confession of hope. When Jesus comes back, we want to be beautiful when he sees us. Not perfect. Not we never mess up. Lord, I want to be doing the best that I can with all that you've given me. With the opportunities, the resources, the connections. I, I want to be doing what I say. I don't want to just say that I believe it. I really want to believe it. And I asked my student minister friend, tell me about the names on these pieces of paper. Are these hypocritical people? Are these surface Christianity people? Are they casual in their faith? He said, no. He said, these people really do what they say. They hold fast the confession of their hope. The second characteristic that the person who wrote Hebrews says is in verse 24. There he said, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love 
and good works. There is a translation that I like better that says spur on to love and good deeds. Provoking is sometimes kind of a negative term, but spurring on means, hey, let's go, let's do this. And there are two specific ideas that I want to communicate from this verse. One of them is the word, let us watch out for one another. When you think about watching out for one another, you, you kind of have the idea of, hey, we're protecting each other and we're doing that. But that, that description isn't exactly the context of this word. When you, when you think, hey, I'm watching out for you, that, that's not exactly what, the way we use it. The word literally means put your eye on somebody. In other words, who is someone whom I might impact? Who is a person, who are people in my circles of relationships that God might use me to sharpen, to, to impact? We begin looking for specific relationships. We begin saying, God, who, who is out there for me? In fact, that's what my quiet time was on this morning from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said, I am putting an open door in front of you. Go through it. And so we begin saying, God, who, who are the people? Who are the students in the classroom? Who are the co-workers? Who are the people in the neighborhood? Who are the people in the church family? Who are those that seem to have a natural connection or affinity to me? God, I want to impact them, so I'm watching out to see who those people might be. Let me give you an example. When I first moved to Columbus, this image is so vivid in my mind. When I first moved to Columbus, I needed some furniture. I'd been in college at Mississippi State and seminary down in New Orleans, so I had zero furniture, none at all. And so I began looking, I, I did bring a bed from my mom and dad's house and just set it up where I was living, but I went to, I'll give them some advertising here, Goose Hollow Furniture. Now, some of you may love having a salesperson with you. I despise it. I do not want a salesperson following me around. Well, have you looked at this? What about this? I like to think and make my own decisions and and figure it out, you know, myself. I like to go back two or three times and think a little bit more. And so when I walked into the store at Goose Hollow, I saw a salesperson get up. This was when they were over there behind that shelf station. Um, you know where I'm talking about. What's that road called? Little, that's right, Little Woods Plaza. You spend a lot of time there. And so, so I walked into the store and I saw a salesperson start making her way to the front. And so I thought, I, she's, I'm sure, a nice lady, but I do not want her following me around in this store. And I was looking for, at that time, bedroom furniture. And so I thought, I am going to trick her. And I started walking toward the kitchen stuff. Toward, now, the bedroom stuff's way over here, but I thought, I'm going to go over this way to the dining room tables and things like that, and she will come over there looking for me, but I am going to go to the back of the store and loop around and be in the bedroom area so that I can just look. And so I, you know, just kind of waved at her, and I walked slowly until I got out of her sight, and then I zipped back over there to get in there, and less than five minutes later, I heard, may I help you? Well, son of a gun. <laughs> She found me in that store. 
That's what the word means. Watching out for, I am specifically looking for people that God might use me to impact. They are out there. They are in our circles. Sometimes we have to build a a bridge to them. But the writer of Hebrews says that's what we do. We specifically look out and, and we don't just say, well, if it happens, it happens. We say, God, I want you to use me. So I'm looking for the people in whose life you might use me. And then when you go on... Uh, later to the word provoke. Again, there is a translation, you may have it, that says let's consider how to spur each other on toward love and good deeds. If you ride horses, you know when you want the horse to go faster, you use your spurs to, to get it going a little bit. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says we need to consider various ways how we can say to those people, keep going. Love other people, do good deeds. We, we need to find specific ways to encourage them forward. I'm going to tell you about a, an example from my own life. On my dad's side of the family, there are seven grandchildren, all boys, not a single girl on that side of the family. In fact, on my mother's side, there are nine of us grandchildren And only one girl, Corey, is the youngest. So I grew up without any sisters, without any girl cousins. I don't know how I became such an expert on women. But somehow I was able to without any female relatives at all, except for little Corey. On my dad's side of the family, my brother and I are the two youngest cousins. And there's a gap between us and the next oldest cousin. And so we constantly were picked on, pushed around, chosen last for Thanksgiving Day football games. It was, it was just the way that it was. One day, for some reason, I don't remember which I was on, I don't remember why I was, you know, six or seven years old, maybe eight or nine. All seven of us grandchildren were at my mom or at my grandparents home and my grandmother said hey everybody I'm gonna I've got to go get my hair cut I want y'all to go with me I don't know why we did we all loaded up in the car <laughs> my grandmother and seven boys no seat belts worn no car seats you know I was my brother and I were stretched out on that back part of the glass you know on those older cars just stretched out in the windshield waving at people in West Point My brother was just waving with one finger for some reason. (laughs) And so we got to the store, or we got to where my grandmother was going to get her hair cut, and there was a little store next to where that was. And she gave all of us some money and said, go in and get whatever you want. And so we scattered in. I don't know how much everybody else got, but I got a dollar, which could buy something then. And so I found what I wanted almost immediately. It was called the water wizard. It was a little attachment that you could screw onto the end of a water hose and it would spray out rockets of water. And I thought, every cousin is there. Today's the day. And on top of that, it only cost 99 cents. So I was going to get a penny left over. And so I walked up to the cash register Nobody scanned things at that time. The cashier punched a few buttons. She said, that'll be a dollar five. 
I said, no, 99 cents. She said, I'm sorry, you have to pay sales tax. Sales tax. I didn't know anything about sales tax. It was my first introduction to the evils of the government. <laughs> she said, every time you buy something, you have to pay sales tax. I didn't. I said, I only have a dollar. She said, I'm sorry, you'll have to get something else. An older lady who happened to have been checking out before me heard what was going on behind her. She had gathered her bags but had not, left yet the, not yet left the store. And she said, how much does he owe? And the lady said, a nickel. He owes, you know, he, it's a dollar. He's got a dollar and it, it's, it cost a dollar five. She came back to that little counter, placed her purse there, started digging down through. The, I don't know how you ladies find anything in those purses. <laughs> she started digging through there, you know, found her lawnmower and things like that. And I don't remember the specific sentence that she said, but she said something like, a nickel is a small price to pay for happiness. And I got that water wizard, and I got my revenge. Now, I want to tell you what that woman's example did for me. Every single time I had been in a checkout line and someone did not have enough money to pay, I have always paid. I've got a 100% track record. Every single time. The last time I was in Kroger across town and a lady thought she had her debit card with her, I saw her up ahead putting some items back, and I said, what's going on? She said, I left my debit card in the car, and I'm going to have to pay with cash. I said, I've got, she said, no, 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 I can't do that. Bought her groceries for her. I told her why. I don't know if that woman knew who I was or not. Permitter is an unusual name. West Point's a small town. I did not know who she was. She may have known who I was. I don't know. But that random spur-of-the-moment encounter for years has spurred me on to love and good deeds. What if we were to do that on purpose? She just acted in the moment. She had no way of knowing the customer behind me is not going to have enough money she just acted, but what if we were to say, I'm doing that on purpose. I am finding ways to make that happen. Now listen, I don't want you people following me around. I don't want you showing up in stores with boxes, uh, with uh, carts and say, Gary, don't have enough money to pay this. Go ahead. But I would do it to keep my track record. The writer of Hebrews says we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. If you say you believe it, do it. He says we need to watch out for, we need to say, who is it that God might use me to impact and then what are specific ways, what is a strategy that I can really invest in this person? And then third, well, and let me back up. So I asked my student minister friend, tell me about the names on these pieces of paper. 
Tell me about the names that your students wrote. Are they people who watch out for and spur on? He said, oh, yes. They all share that in common. The ones that I know do. And then there's one last idea here. It's down in verse 25. He said, not neglecting to gather together as some, one, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's really hard to impact somebody if you see them only sporadically. It's hard to really leave an impression. It's hard to make a significant investment in others if you only see them from time to time. Some of you may have coaches that made a real difference in your life. If that's the case, you wouldn't stand up and say, you know, Coach hardly ever came to practice. He'd show up on Mondays, and some days he would come in on Thursdays. You know, we, we, we hardly ever saw him, uh, maybe about half the time. But boy, he was a big impact. That's not, that's not where the impact comes. Some of you may have been thinking about teachers. Who's someone who really impacted you? If you're thinking of a teacher, you're, you probably aren't saying, you know, I had her for a full year, but I probably only saw her, I don't know, maybe 40 days or so. Because she just showed up to work on Thursdays. One of the ways that people have impact on others is they consistently are in their lives. And one of the reasons that many people who are on church roles have no tangible impact is they just are in and out as long as it's convenient. And the moment something is a higher priority, then don't squint your eyes looking for them in the church pews because they've got to take care of the other responsibilities. The writer of Hebrews says, don't expect to have impact if you won't gather together. Part of the, part of the basis for impact is saying, hey, we are committed to being in the same place at the same time so that that type of impact can happen. And I asked my student minister friend, well, tell me about, tell me about these people that your students wrote. I know you don't know all of them, but the ones that you do know, he said they're pillars in our church. He said they're not necessarily older. Some of them are. But these are people that our teenagers see every Sunday. They see them every Wednesday. Those adults are able to connect to them, say, how, how is school going? What's the latest on your mom? You said she was having some, some medical problems. Hey, you said there was a little situation at school that was giving you problems. I said, do these people fit that? He said, oh, they all do. What type of person impacts others? We began the message thinking about five different people that have had some sort of impact on our lives. And the names might overlap on some pieces of paper, but probably not. Many, but the characteristics do.
They're shared. They're, they're people who say, God has put me on this earth, and it is not simply just to pass the time. It is to invest in others so that they become the people that God intended for them to be. Now, what if we were to do this? I began by asking you to think of five names. What if we were to go out into the New Hope and Caledonia communities? What if we were just to scatter randomly to the homes of people who know us? And we were to say, as I asked my student minister friend to do, hey, would you, would you put on the piece of paper, would you put on this piece of paper five names, the names of five people who have really profoundly impacted you? Would your name be placed on pieces of paper? Would people, as they think of how they became who they are, say, man, this, this man, this woman, that's how we want to live. We're going to have an opportunity for you to respond to anything that God may have said to you today. Philip's going to come and Jackson's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of commitment. Maybe there are people who are here today. You never know who gathers in a church building on a Sunday. Maybe there are people who are here and you have never received Jesus Christ as Savior. I would love to talk with you about how you can begin following Him. If there are other commitments that God has placed on your heart, I'll be standing at the front for just a moment. We'll be glad to pray with you, talk with you. Philip, what are we going to sing today? We're going to sing Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey. Let's stand together, please.